0: Hello and welcome to Dockside, the podcast that helps you save and enjoy the waters you love by sharing clean and safe boating practices. I'm your host, Diana Fu. In today's episode, we will talk with our friend Steve Engborg, senior environmental scientist at the Rhode Island Department of Environmental Management about shellfish, sewage, water quality, and more. Let's hop into it. Steve, thank you so much for joining our show. I'd love to hear more about what you do for Rhode Island's Department of Environmental Management.
1: Sure. Thanks, Diana, for having me on. And um, uh, it's, it's nice to be able to talk about what we do. And um, it's not often that people are, are wanting to hear about it. Sometimes they're um, forced to, as we in, encounter people in public, and uh, people who are digging are very interested um, and who make a living from what we do. So what my group does uh, here at the Rhode Island Department of Environmental Management is um, we are tasked with ensuring the state's compliance with um, the Food and Drug Administration's National Shellfish Sanitation Program. So because um, really the shellfish that people are eating because of their biological niche where they're growing, it lends for some uh, particularly Specific public health risks, and um, especially because people are recreating in the waters where they're growing, it's these shallow, warm bays close to metropolitan areas nowadays. Um, so we run into situations where public health is very concerned, uh, and and the as our regulators and departments of health that um, the public is protected, really. Um, and and this this is a food and drug administered an overseen industry. And as I mentioned, if you're eating raw shellfish, you have a high exposure to the bacteria that they eat. And um, there are other things that we may talk about later that um, even if you're eating cooked shellfish, you could be exposed to some some environmental concerns.
0: Yeah. So I guess that begs the question, you know, what is the relationship between shellfish and Water. I mean, it seems kind of obvious shellfish live in water. And uh, kind of along with that, how are the shellfish waters in Rhode Island? What's that water
1: quality looking like? Well, it's, it's a, um, I am in the last five years, I am new to this uh, field, but I have read quite a bit and been versed. And um, Rhode Island has an extremely long history of shellfish harvest and shellfish growing and uh, I don't want to bore all of your, your West Coast listeners about it, but but I can get into that a little bit. Um, basically, anywhere in the U.S. where you're going to be eating a shellfish, cooked or raw, if it's wild harvest or, or aquaculture, um, if it's grown, it's going to be subject to this um, uniform set of standards. So when you eat a shellfish, you can be confident in the United States, if you're eating a shellfish coming from a market, you're confident you're not going to get sick from it. And the reason for that is, is when, when you set up society like we do around major ports, uh, you know, there's a lot of history that goes back, but the reason that these shellfish are growing there is because that's their, their little happy places in these tidal inlets and near these freshwater where fresh water's draining into salt waters in these in these estuaries. And this also means that there's, not only are there a lot of birds activity, which is sometimes we run into that issues when there's lots of birds, we can have um, certain pathogens that are passed from birds to the shellfish, but also uh, human activity can also, there can be pathogens that are passed from from human waste into these shellfish. And so since the shellfish are sitting there and they're doing uh, a great job at, at filtering the water and that's how they're eating is they're consuming things from the water. And obviously they're sedentary for most of their life. They are concentrating potentially harmful bacteria and, and algae and, and toxins as well. So, um, there, there are many ways, uh, to get, you can either cook some of this stuff out or you can flush them out. But um, for the most part, this is a, uh, it's just basically the perfect storm because they're very close and easy and and people love to collect them and harvest them and it's a wonderful thing. But depending on how close you are to a treatment plant or how close you are to other pollution sources, it it may not be safe for you to do so. i'm I love wild harvest of of everything from mushrooms to shellfish, but if you're going to do that, you need to definitely make sure that you check your your state's um, fish and wildlife or environmental management um, regulations and, and websites to see where are open and closed areas just to protect you and and your family um, and at risk of of going too far into the shellfish biology, I am gonna. I will jump a little bit into the second part of your question, which was, how are the, the Rhode Island, how's Rhode Island water quality? So I assume a lot of your listeners are from the West Coast. So out here in the, the nation's smallest state, we are known as the ocean state because we have, uh, I think, the longest coastline to area ratio. So um, Narragansett Bay is a... a relic of glacial times and it's it's a very protected inlet around which providence is at the head of it um, and then we have smaller cities and and towns spread out throughout uh, in a, a few large islands and what it lends for is a very perfect area for hogs to go hard shell clams here if you're depending on how long you've lived in rhode island you can call them quahogs, but um if you're not from Rhode Island, you call them coahogs. And that's our largest market currently, but um, at one point it was oysters. And the majority of the oysters eaten on the East Coast came from Rhode Island waters. That has changed um, over the past hundred or so years, but, but now it's cohogs. and um, that is our state shellfish and we are very proud of it. And everybody here is, is extremely proud of our, our waters and of, of Narragansett Bay. And that's mostly because in the last 50 or 60 years, um, people who've lived through it have, have tell me, and I've seen the, the data, that um, the Narragansett Bay has gone from, essentially a cesspool, where there was millions of gallons of untreated sewage um, flowing into the bay from, from various wastewater treatment plants to a um, extremely clean and um, healthy environment and we just opened an area of the Providence River to shellfish harvest that hasn't been opened in in 150 years. So things are very good today in uh, Rhode Island's waters for shellfish.
0: That's really good to hear and quite a hopeful story. I feel like oftentimes when we talk about the environment it can be very um, apocalyptic and kind of negative. So it's actually kind of good to hear a hopeful story um, of, of, yeah, just in the environmental field in general. Um, Going off of kind of this hopeful um, kind of cleanup of the bay um, in Rhode Island, I I wanted to ask what led to that change uh, in water quality?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So being the smallest state, we are, One of the many benefits of that is that um, although we're densely populated, everybody is sharing the same resources and really lives in the same region. So when the waters were getting very bad, um, things changed. And there was a couple events that caused that. But one of the largest changes that happened um, was the wastewater treatment facilities uh, changed how they were treating their the influent, the sewage coming into the plant, and then therefore they were able to clean the effluent, the sewage that's coming, or the the water that's coming out of it um, substantially. And so that was many different technological changes, but one of the largest changes that just happened and it's still ongoing is here in Providence, the um, sewer systems are combined with the stormwater systems. So all of the sewers are connected to the storm drains. And so what would happen in large rains is the plants would get overwhelmed with the influx of water. And they, in order to not flood and back up the plants, they would have to bypass either untreated or partially treated um, stormwater and sewage into the bay. And so really, it wasn't that long ago where there was tens of millions of gallons potentially daily or more being pumped into the bay. And so the project that just is ongoing, it's called the Combined Sewage Overflow Tunnel. And it's um, about a 30-foot wide tunnel that has, it's, it's three miles long and it's under the city. It's been bored. And so now when there are big rain events and stuff, that tunnel collects all of the, the water can be uh, diverted from this, you know, to go into this massive tunnel and then to be treated at a later time slowly. So it's not at all, no, nothing's bypassed into the bay, and it's um, it's a, a feat of engineering, and it's also a feat of uh, political might that it happened, and and everybody's really happy about it. It was um, at a, it was at a huge cost, um, numbers that don't really make sense to me, but it seems like the entire public and everybody's very thrilled, and we certainly are in the shellfish industry because we no longer have to close shellfish. Um, growing areas based off of uh, by sewer bypasses we do close off of rain certain rainfalls trigger different closures of different areas um, we can get into that a little bit later why that is but the we're no longer have any closures unless it's there's an emergency which you know which could potentially happen
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I believe, you know, combined sewer overflow systems are quite common in American cities across the United States, so it's not just um, Rhode Island that's kind of, or Providence that's, you know, suffering the kind of consequences of overflow of of sewage uh, into waters. Um, I wanted to kind of just talk a little bit about boat sewage. Um, since we are, um, you know, funded by the, the clean vessel act program, um, do boaters have a significant effect on water quality in the waters off of Rhode Island? Um, and before you answer that question, I just want to preface that in, in California, at least we have over 4 million recreational boaters and perhaps not every single one of them has a, um, a holding tank for their sewage on board, but four million boaters. If you think about the potential of, of you know, sewage discharge in our waters, it is quite significant. Um, so I would, uh, yeah, I would love to hear about kind of how boat sewage affects uh, Rhode Island's waters.
1: Yeah, so you know, stemming from that last question uh, about the wastewater treatment facilities, we so because that has been taken care of, and be, really because Rhode Island is. We're on the Atlantic Ocean, Block Island Sound, but really Narragansett Bay is where the whole state is around the bay. So that bay is our, is our gem. And now that, that we had a cesspool phase-out that's just ended, so um, no houses can be sold without taking out their, their outdated um, septic treatment plants, uh, you know, their septic facilities, a cesspool. Is an old technology with the open bottom. Um, so, so now that we've that land-based pollution has been nearly eliminated, it um, the ability to to see the number of boats and uh, the discharges from boats is has been has been growing. It's been growing, and growing, and as we've we have a lot of boat uh, history here in Rhode Island, and boating is very important to people's um, livelihood and and whether it's tourism or whether it's it's fishing it's or aquaculture there's there's a whole lot of industries around that so um rhode island was the first state in 1998 to designate all of its waters as no discharge zone um and that's easy for rhode island to do because we're so small but um it was it was met with a lot of pushback from from the boating community and and now um here we are 15, uh, how many, you know, 25 years later, we're looking at it. It it really was a, um, an effort, an educational effort that happened in Rhode Island over the past 20 or so years that, uh, boaters in the boating industry were a little bit ticked off because what happened and this was with cva clean vessel act funds as well we we distribute them here through the state for pump out facilities we're big fans of the sport fish restoration act and and big proponents of all of the work that's done by u.s fish and wildlife and and all everything that's done with the clean vessel act program um but we were at that time the dem was telling people you can't do what your grandpa did you know you can't do what your grandmother did you can't dump your waste from your boat and the weekend that you had on your boat or maybe you have a liveaboard. And we're, it was a, a, a mind shift change that over the past 20 years it's really come so far that now we're at a point where um, it really has a much, we don't get many complaints at all about illegal discharges. And thanks to CVA funds, we've been able to install, it may not sound like much it to, by California standards, but we have about 50 different locations for our pump outs and um, just under 20 pump out boats that are running. And um, the ability for boaters to pump out is, is critical and it's known on the boater side and it's also known on the, the private side and the municipal side. And so we are constantly pushing for more and more accessibility to these pump outs, but we think that we're at a point where everybody knows not to pump, uh, not to dump, right? That To pump. And we are still trying to remove those barriers, whether it's the $5 cost. We, we're trying to subsidize more and more of the, um, the costs that, that come onto the voter for, you know, to get this done. We don't want any obstacles. So, um, For the most part, things have been very good. So Rhode Island, besides in 1998, making a no discharge zone in all state waters in 2006, um, the state took it a step further and we made a mandatory no discharge compliance program. So today in Rhode Island, you need, if you have a boat with a permanently installed toilet, every four years, you need to get an inspection from an authorized agent, which there's about 75 different marinas through the state that offer this service and they'll do an inspection, and then they give you a decal. And so you get the decal that says, basically it's ensuring that you're unable to discharge overboard. Um, so if that's a Y-valve, that might be a padlock, but your system is set up in a way that you are unable when you're in the state waters to dump. It may be something that you can take off when you're out three miles and you're able to discharge um, for some of the larger boats that, that travel um, on the high seas, but for the most part, most of our boats are small, uh, less than 25-foot boats, and, um, and, oh, and a lot of them don't have permanently installed heads. So this doesn't affect those uh, non-permanently installed toilets, but um, we, we're really thinking that things are looking positive um, in, in water quality in Narragansett Bay, and it's in large part because the boaters have bought into this and realized that, you know, a lot of the things that people like to do on the water, they are tied to excellent water quality. You can't do it without having really, really excellent water quality. And um, to see it from the shellfishing side is is interesting because um, shellfish don't really care. In fact, the shellfish might do better with more, more crap in the water. Um, But for human consumption, there are our sampling is all based off of, as I said earlier, the NSSP, which sets a a threshold that um, I, we don't have to get into weeds about it, but basically all of the waters that people are digging and um, consuming shellfish from meet that. And that's that's a large part of my job outside of the CPA stuff is to, to make sure that that's happening. And if it's not, we figure out why and investigate upstream of that.
0: Yeah wow that's really just like cool to hear that there's been a huge culture shift in voters. I think a lot of times you know when we think about regulations it's either the carrot or the stick and um, when we talk about behavior change right i mean a large part of the clean vessel act program a, a lot of what california does is outreach and education how do we change people's behaviors and how do we change kind of these uh, traditions i mean i don't want to say it's a tradition to dump you know your sewage in the water but you know it's it's like you're you know something if you grew up you know going boating with um, you know, your grandparents or your parents, and this is just something they have always done. And then all of a sudden being told that you can't really do it anymore. Um, it, it, it is different. And I'm, I'm really impressed to hear that that for the most part in Rhode Island, that culture has really shifted into stewarding the water so that, you know, everyone can enjoy this fantastic water quality. Um, and I also think it's it's funny that, <laughs> you know, you were saying that shellfish, you know, might actually do better if there's crap in the water, but it's really kind of this like karmic uh, thing, you know, what, what, what goes into the water eventually comes out of it and kind of affects us as humans. And I, I think that's just a really interesting way to think about it. Um, you mentioned no discharge zones a fair amount of times. Um, when you were speaking earlier, and I wanted just to break that down a little bit for listeners, I, I don't think a lot of people know what no discharge zones mean. I mean, it, it, it's kind of in the name; it sounds like you're not allowed to discharge in the water. But what what is exactly this zone, and how do you one, you know, can you discharge treated sewage, or is it, um, you know, no discharging of anything um, into these waters or into this zone? And two how far does the no discharge zone extend in Rhode Island? Is it off, based off, off shore or is it, um, yeah. How do you find more about no discharge zones?
1: Yeah, those are good questions. The, the no discharge zone is um, a zone of the state waters, which in Rhode Island, and I, I can't speak to other states, it's, it's three miles from the shore. And so we have this um, beautiful, wonderful island that is offshore called Block Island. It's a, a, a vacation spot and there's also a year round residence there, but it's a big um, destination for for fishermen and sailors alike and and beach goers. And so there's also three miles around that island. So we have a funky, you can look it up online, our no discharge zone map, but um, that's where the limit is, And so within that zone, you're unable, or it is not allowed, it's illegal, to dump any sort of sewage from a boat. So there are three types of marine marine storage devices on boats um, that are that are legal, and two of them are treat treated you know, they're for ocean-going vessels, then in some cases, that's uh, deemed acceptable what's coming out of the boat. Um, and in the, in the past and in some states that's allowed, but in Rhode Island's no discharge zone, within three miles from the coast, type one and two of um, these chemical means of, or biological means of treating sewage and then discharging is not allowed. So you need to hold all of the sewage in, in um, a marine storage device until it can be pumped out. So there is no discharge of treated or untreated sewage allowed in a no discharge zone and you know it kind of I'm sure it's understood why because I mean and and I had mentioned pathogenic viruses and and organisms but besides the bacteria that can be concentrated or, or the any of those pathogens that can be concentrated inside shellfish and then for humans to eat and get sick. There's the other concerns are the ecological damage that can come from this influx of huge, um, you know, besides the pathogenic, you're talking about a, a massive amount of nitrogen coming in and that can cause um, harmful algae blooms or it, this uh, eutrophication of, and, and a crash in the oxygen. So there's, there's a lot that is not directly related to humans that can happen from this sort of dumping and and it it really can damage the local marine ecology and um and it can it can impact people's uh economic reality too for fishermen and shell fishermen because um you know boiled down basically a, a gallon of sewage can have 100 million fecal coliform um Whatever there's different measure, ways to measurement, but let's say you can have a hundred thousand little organisms in there that are that are fecal coliform. The standard that all the states go off of is you can have 14, uh, 14 of these fecal coliform units per milliliter. So if in a gallon you have a hundred million, um, it's in, in one way you can say a gallon of raw sewage could potentially contaminate a million gallons of seawater. So, and make a million gallons around where you dump that one gallon of sewage. Uh, if we were to test it, it would be closed, we would have to close that area to shell fishing at, at least off of our you know, data for that period of time. So um, a small amount of sewage dumped in the water can go a long way and cause, cause um, Real negative health effects, and you know, it's it's. I, I don't really want to get into it because I don't know much about it. But I do know that wastewater treatment facilities, um, you know, there's been a lot in the in the news and a lot of research going on with tracking COVID outbreaks in wastewater treatment facilities at at large um, in large cities. And so, I guess that's all I'll say about that. But you know, there's there's quite a bit of um, negative that can come from dumpage and and no positives.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I I think uh, I read somewhere, or I I think this is a statistic that I got from the Bay Foundation, our partners uh, uh, down south in Southern California, that if you were to dump uh, one tank full, or no, one gallon of untreated sewage from your boat into the water, it's the equivalent of, I believe 10,000 flushes from a household toilet that has been treated in a wastewater treatment plant and then released as effluent into the water. So if you think about, you know, oh, it's just one gallon of boat, so it is not gonna make a big difference in reality. I mean, think about how many toilet flushes, right, from our house would have to uh, kind of equate uh, in terms of fecal coliforms and and other, you know, nutrient impacts and and whatnot. Um, Awesome. Okay, I mean, I kind of want to go back to this question about behavior change. Uh, again, with the carrot and the stick and what Rhode Island has done um, in terms of this culture shift. Here in California, we are are still getting our stuff together um, and still working with, you know, boaters across many different regions, educating them, you know, kind of incentivizing or removing barriers to pumping out their boats. Um, What should boaters or marina managers do if they want to prevent boat sewage from contaminating
1: waterways? well you know we i i think everyone here would appreciate the high words of praise and i i am speaking very highly of rhode island but we are still battling with with certain things and and one of them is liveaboards um large boats that people live on and you know frankly the i'm sure california's the same but uh waterfront property here is really um uh, expensive and it's it's becoming more and more expensive so it's become a more and more popular thing to do to have a boat as a second home as a a vacation spot and the the difficulty that we're finding is some of these boats don't have engines (laughs) you know they're big large uh and i'm sure they're great and people have fun on them but you're reliant then on a pump out boat if you can't if your boat doesn't move so um you know what we are the with the Rhode Island marine Trade Association as we've there's been discussions amongst uh, stakeholders here and I'm sure the same discussions are going on around the whole country uh, we're trying to get the marinas to be proactive in this way and so when you most marinas in the state when you are signing a lease to keep your boat somewhere for the for the summer here right in the northern latitudes here it's uh, basically a six-month Boating season, um, you're signing that, and the lease says, I'm going to follow all applicable state and federal regulations. So it's just a matter of getting marina managers and on board with actually letting the boater know what that is. And so for us, it's easy because we have this decal. And so part of getting the decal, you're getting your boat inspected to make sure it's in compliance, but you're also, it's a touch point, it's an education. Outreach moment where, uh, oftentimes boaters may not know the workings of their boats. They may not know the plumbings, you know how the plumbing works and how, what's in their bilges. Other people are doing the work, so this is a direct contact where we're able to, um, through, you know, a, an intermittentary person, we're able to, to to give the boater a little bit of education and say, well, you know, this is this is why it's this is why this is necessary. And this is why we don't want people dumping. And, um, and this is the punishment, you know, this is the fine. There's punitive measures if you do dump. So, so that is still being worked on a little bit here and, um, hopefully it'll, we'll, we'll go much further with that. But I think the one of the cults going back to cultural shifts is that there is now a, an understanding that you're not able to dump. So when people do dump, um, it's people, uh, their neighbors know it's wrong. First of all, their neighbors don't appreciate the smell or, but it's really, I think more, their neighbors don't appreciate the decrease in water quality that's going to come from that. So if you're keeping your fellow boaters accountable, um, that's something that we've found has, has been happening and it comes with the cultural shift. So when, if somebody is dumping, um, they call the, Environmental law officers or harbor masters to come down and, and, um, and determine if, if that happened or not. And so, you know, that's something that has, has been getting less and less, but there's besides the live there's also a rise in houseboats and, and Airbnb rental houseboats. And so, you know, some, some of the times uh, the renters of those have no idea at all. You know, they don't, they they don't own the boat. It's not their problem. They're flushing it. They're just, you know, so it does come back to the marina owner and who's, who's running the marina and making sure that, you know, that these maybe are hooked up permanently to a sewer with a hard pipe or that they're being pumped out at a, in a knowledgeable way.
0: Yeah, here in California, we also work very closely with marina managers. We uh, go out to, to monitor the pump out stations about three times a year up here in Northern California. And we always try to make sure to to just show some face and you know get to know the marina managers because I really do feel like uh, marina managers or operators or whatever you wanna call them, um, harbor masters, they, they do so much in terms of helping the state uh, regulators um, kind of enforce these these laws that are really critical and, and are, are kind of key touch points for voters too um, when it comes to education about any new laws or regulations, especially around boat sewage. So really good to hear um, that it's quite similar in in Rhode Island, and it, it may seem like the case across the nation. Um, my last question for you as we're uh, wrapping up this this interview, I wanted to ask what do you want listeners to remember from this episode
1: well i'm i'm um I'm so glad that it, this didn't become just clean vessel act focus because we're clearly both um, in the field and, and into it and recognize how how important it is and if so, what I would like people to take away from it is um you know really if you it's really important to properly dispose of human waste on a boat um because there's no treatment plant right and if it's you're directly putting that where it shouldn't be in a delicate area and and there's many impacts that could come from that so if if at this point i think that that is is known across the boating community at least here so so then the next question would be is What would be the reason to dump? And I would assume that that, you know, somebody's rationale for doing that would be, well, because it's I can't find a pump out. It's too hard or it's there there was a line or whatever that is. So what I would want people to walk away from this boaters specifically is if if you have a boat and you're feeling that, then I urge you just to, to contact your local Department of Environmental Management or contact. Whoever's responsible for administering the CVA funds, because regulators and and, um, the grant coordinators are—they, everybody's working towards the same goal—and they need to know that information. That input is very helpful to know where there's either a down pump or there's lacking of accessibility. Um, That is crucial information for them to know, and and you know, go out a couple times a year to inspect them. That doesn't mean that we know every time that they're down and. Um, or, or, you know, if there's an issue going on or they're charging more than they should be or it's not accessible, those are all things that I just would urge people to reach out to the people responsible in their state to to let them know. Um, and, and on that note, I mean, obviously we are, we um, just have gotten on board with the Pump Out NAV app. Um, and so... Yeah, if, if you're having a hard time finding a pump out or don't know where they are or you only use your local one and you're going on a little trip with the boat, definitely download that app. And it can it can navigate you to the closest one and it can give you information about how how much it costs and pictures of it and you can report problems. So we are a big fans. So a big shout out to that team that runs the, the pump out nav app. And um, I urge everybody to download it.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for that shout out Steve. I did want to mention that the Pump Out NAV app was actually created by the San Francisco Estuary Partnership, the Bay Foundation and the California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways, and funded by the Division of Boating and Waterways Clean Vessel Act Education Program, and the Federal Clean Vessel Grant Act Program.
1: It really is everybody's best interest. to do this together because this is a communal resource. All of the waters are, you know, connected, and everybody who's sharing them—whether it's swimming or fishing or sailing or or just even sightseeing and or taking pictures of birds or whatever you're doing—it's um, in their best interest to to keep the water clean.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. And thank you for the shout out to Pump Out Now. That is something that um, our team over here at San Francisco Estuary Partnership has been working on for I, I think five plus years and glad to hear that folks at uh, other states are, are utilizing it and enjoying it and hopefully it becomes like a nationwide network that um, voters you know, across the US can use and maybe even beyond. Um, cool. Well, thank you so much, Steve. I think that really said it all. Um, You know, it's in everyone's best interest to steward our waters. Um, It's a communal resource. Um, I definitely feel that um, and believe in that. And it's why we do the work that we do. Thank you to all you listeners out there for joining us for another episode of Dockside. My guest today was Steve Engborg from the Rhode Island Department of Environmental Management. Our next episode will explore the mysteries of marine sanitation devices, or MSDs. For more information about clean boating practices visit boatingcleanandgreen.com that's boatingcleanandgreen.com this podcast was brought to you by california state parks the california coastal commission and the san francisco estuary partnership it is partially funded by the division of boating and waterways clean vessel act education program and the Federal Clean Vessel Grant Act program.